This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, what can I say? I have an extra special guest. His name is Brian Grazer. If you have any interest in the entertainment industry, if you're a film buff, if you watch any of the best television and films produced over the past 30 years, well, then you're definitely familiar with his work, and you will find this to be an absolutely fantastic conversation, fascinating and informative. With no further ado, my interview of Brian Grazer. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My extra special guest this week is Brian Grazer. He is the co-founder of Imagine Entertainment with his partner, Ron Howard. He is the producer of such seminal films as Splash, Backdraft, Apollo 13, Liar Liar, 8 Mile. His television offerings include such things as Sports Night, 24, and The Cult. Can I call it a cult favorite? Arrested Development. It is. Yeah, that's funny. His films have generated more than $13.5 billion in revenue, and his television work has done probably twice as much as that. The Producers Guild of America awarded him the David O. Selznick Lifetime Achievement Award in 2001. He is the author of A Curious Mind and most recently, Face to Face, The Art of Human Connection. Brian Grazer, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you. Glad to be here, Bo- and, uh, Bloomberg rather, and with Barry, and who I'm, helped me get all my food items for the morning. <laughs> we, we got you ready to go. So I'm looking deeply into your eyes. And in the book, you explain how, as a kid, that was a problem. Looking people directly face-to-face was a challenge. How did that manifest itself, and how did you overcome that? Okay, so, um, and thank you for reading the book and having me on My the pleasure. show. By I, the way, the book was very enjoyable. It's very, you're, a, you're a spiritual, philosophical cat, and I found that really interesting. I am, actually. But thank you. Um, so, as a kid, I had acute dyslexia. But it wasn't called that then. It wasn't labeled as such. It was just like that kid Learning is, disability. Yeah, learning disability. Let's put him back. Right. I was the kid that would let the parents were talking about every night, let's put him back, kid. Um, but, I, but, it was, but it was really just, you know, the, 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 the root of that was that I had no ability to read. I couldn't read one word. Mm-hmm. I couldn't even sequence a sentence. I mean, I, I would be out, way out of sequence, and I'd often start from the wrong side. And you have left to right issues also? I do. I still have that Me, problem. So I'll, I'll share some secrets with you. Learners part. But with discipline, you can... Uh, you can fix well once you're married you know the oh yeah yeah. that was a big deal but i remember taking my learner's permit test and left is the hand that make the l every time the instructor would say make a right or a left i would go this Uh, and he would say what are you doing i'm like i that's how the only way i know left from right mm. so so what did you do to overcome the reading issue well i what i did was i avoided eye contact with all teachers all the time they love that uh, no, they don't like. <laughs> I avoided eye contact. It, it just became. I did that because if you look at the teacher, or or if your eyes are available, in fact, uh-huh. then you'd get picked to answer the question, or 
Brian come to the come to the board, you know, the chalkboard. So I just didn't want any of those requests because I never had the answer because mm -hmm. it was always based on the material you were to have read. And I was incapable of reading. And I had a Mr. Polavoy who was teaching me how to read theoretically, but it was impossible for impossible for him um, just because of the way the, this, the symptoms and root of, of dyslexia itself. So anyway, nonetheless, couldn't read. About fourth, I guess around fifth grade... I started to be able to read a little, and but by the way, my grandmother. I had a gr I had one mentor in uh -huh. my life at the time that really believed in Brian. <laughs> right, and she'd say, "You have the gift of gab. You have curiosity, and you can talk about it." And and she'd be looking at my report cards over my shoulder that were straight Fs. And I'm thinking, oh, wow, she believes in me. And she says, you're going all the way. She had all those isms. You're going all the way, think big, be big. But there was like no empirical evidence whatsoever that I was going to be the think big, be big person. She saw something in you, obviously. She saw something this in me. This is more than just a grandmother's love. This is, she yeah. saw something. She, she saw the hints of this superpower called curiosity. Right. And that that is valuable, and if you can use it exhaustively with human beings, you can learn a lot, gain insights, and gain hearts. Mm -hmm. And um, she, if I said that right now to her, if she were alive, she would say, yes, that's that's right. She'd probably be very, very strong on the hearts. Right. Um, in any event, fifth grade, I could read, and now I realize if I can read, I can now look at people. Uh -huh. So I started looking at people, and 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 using them also as as a secondary or primary textbook unto themselves. So I would look at you today, for example. I noticed so much about you, Barry. Really, Ab so much. Um, well, you move quickly. You think quickly. You're very helpful. Little hyper. You yeah. um, incredibly smart. Well, now I'm sound. Stop. Over, stop. Yeah. Okay. Please. So I don't want. So but go, I did go on. Go I, on. Yeah. Yeah. No, stop. I, some more. <laughs> but I did notice uh, quite a bit. So. Um, you're you're, you're a student. You are a judge, not with me, but you you tend to be a judge of human nature and human yes. character. You do this in the in the way. This is my pop observation in the in the material you select to make films in the casting. I know everybody yes. works with casting director uh, and others, but it looks like that's a big part of of what you do. Well, I'm very, I'm very good at prospecting for ideas mm -hmm. that have that haven't been done that have uh, an authentic voice, and or there'll be an idea that's as simple as uh, face to face, mm -hmm. but I'm able to granulate the techniques of what face to face means in a way that's interesting and with stories, and that empowers people to you know, get the promotion they're looking to get uh -huh. so that they can communicate it. And they understand that energy, someone's energy, the energy you bring into a room, that millisecond is the beginning of the Barry story or the right. Brian story. And you don't want anything to deflect that present state of mind. And then you want to be, you want to use your eye contact, and I'm using this in a simple way, you want to use your eye contact as a as a tool, a bridge, the Wi-Fi into <laughs> human connection itself. And if you're really present with somebody, like just, you know, genuine interest, not transactional interest, but right. genuine interest, you gain so much. 
Every one of my movies, A Beautiful Mind, Friday Night Lights, Empire's Television, of course, Mm -hmm. um, any of the successful things I ever did, Splash, which you referenced, it's all birthed out of like human interaction, human connection, and which came into play because of eye contact. Then, let's say I have those insights, as I did on, let's use A Beautiful Mind. Mm Mm-hmm. Then I need someone to pay for a beautiful mind, right? <laughs> you know, because then they they could box it up and say, "Oh, it's a movie about schizophrenia. That's not going to be a popular or sexy subject." Which, of course, I heard to some degree. Right. Then what I have to do is use the powers of my observational skills that I've had in the past, and okay, which one? Which? How do I approach this so that I can make it not um, a study of schizophrenia? But a, a how do I make it a story that's engaging to people? How do I make it cinematic? What perspective on this subject makes it worthy of somebody going out of their house, getting a babysitter, whatever they have to do, find the parking spot, pay for the seat, and then feel like they've had a great time? I'd rather had a great time. So I have to invent all of that stuff, or I have to lead the invention of all of that stuff. The invention uh, mm. and and those things in the case of a beautiful mind came from my the ob- just simple observational power of meeting new and interesting people. So the the story of a beautiful mind, what made it cinematic was twenty years before beautiful mind ever existed. I met a woman in nineteen eighty five named Veronica De Negre, uh-huh. who was tortured in Chile. She was. Uh, uh, during the Pinochet regime, the dictatorship of Pinochet. And so she was sentenced to 18 months of constant torture. And I had the opportunity to meet her through Sting, actually, because I'd mm-hmm. met him a year before that, because I was so fascinated. Like, I thought, how does a teacher become a rock star? Right. And so I constantly asked myself these questions. So I got to meet Sting. A year later, Stinks has come over for the barbecue. I meet Veronica Denegre. I say, how, do you, how did you survive it? She said, I created an alternate narrative that I would live in, another story I would live right. in all of the time. So I live and fully engage in this other story that's not actually reality because reality was torture. So that enabled her to survive this 18 months. And I thought, well, then I'm thinking, wow, that's very interesting. 20 years later, I transport that insight that I gained from this non-transactional conversation. Right. And I thought, that insight completely applies to a schizophrenic mind. So if we start the movie through an alternate nar- alternate universe, an alternate right. narrative, like another story, which we did, it's going to be mind-blowing to people. Now, it could disengage them, but it can also really engage them because it, then it becomes kind of a thriller, so it changes the entire genre of the experience. So therefore, instead of being a drama, it became a thriller. And then a love story, and that's how he, John Nash survived the and coped with his schizophrenia. I was going to say, it's not about schizophrenia. It's a love story with one of the parties sort of descending yeah. into a bit of madness, and yeah. that's the driver uh, of the plot. I, I have to talk about Beautiful Mind for a minute. Okay. Because I just watched a couple of weeks ago The Loudest Voice in the Room. Not mm. only is Russell Crowe so fabulous mm. in 
in uh, A Beautiful he's Mind. Amazing. He's spectacular. Like, he you is. can't believe this is the same guy. It's such a... Di- yeah. And then Jennifer Connelly, God, I, I fell in love with her in um, Career Opportunities, and she's <laughs> just so amazing oh, in Beautiful Mind. She's just spectacular in it. Mm. She won an Oscar for that, she right? She won an Oscar. As and, did you. And as did I, yes, yeah. Yeah. Um, quite quite interesting. It was great. Um, great experience. And you've yeah. said this is your uh, this is your favorite film that you've made. It's certainly yeah, it's probably my favorite film. I made. A, I have several that I really like a lot, but A Beautiful Mind is probably my favorite film because um, it triumphed in so many categories. Mm-hmm. I mean, it it uh, became a vehicle of a message that mattered to me, which was let's look at people directly and and treat people as human beings and try to understand them and not not apply an immediate bias. And I was right. one of those people that There's would've... no caricatures in that film at all. <clears throat> yeah, and I, I wanted to help destigmatize mental disability. Mm-hmm. So that when you, we here in New York, you see people in the street, they're yelling in, in the middle of the street or they're screaming at a store window and let's not just disregard them immediately. I mean, I mean, let's try to understand that they may be bipolar, they may be schizophrenic, they have issues. And, and basically... Compassion is so powerful, so important to success, really. Mm -hmm. Empathy is really important to success. I've been able to sell and raise lots of money for lots of movies, billions of dollars for for movies, which are really ideas. But similar to a startup, like, say, okay, Let's do Airbnb. You know, they're not that different. <laughs> you know, they don't make it's a lot a of... It's a startup. It's entrepreneurial. You have to bring in investors. Yeah. You have to bring in managers. It's it's very parallel to running a, a new tech startup. Exactly. And it, it can fail in an evening or it can succeed or have life and you pump more life into it. And it could be a beautiful mind, for example. Quite, quite fascinating. But you really have to be, in order to do anything, anything well you like get the raise raise the hundred million dollars find your wife my me finding my wife you have to be present and open-minded so you do a lot of work that's been recognized and and awarded and rewarded tell us a little bit about your process how do you decide what films you want to produce is it the business side is it things you want to see what what is your process like Okay, because my first success was in 1984 about a mermaid. Splash. Splash. And it, it's really, that became, that became very helpful in the way I would start this journey. So mm-hmm. basically... Both the people and the process, or... No, just the, the hundreds of people that turned down a mermaid movie because it sounded so stupid to them. You go, this is the stupidest idea. It's like, there's no such thing as a mermaid or it's just a, a dumb idea. Um, what you what you learn is that, first of all, nobody really knows <laughs> and nobody really knows the internal heartbeat of something, particularly when it's got a, you know, a big premise at the beginning of it. So the fact that I could do a dumb idea and have it be really successful meant that I should just do things that I believe in. That's so, that's the William Goldman quote about Hollywood. Nobody knows yes. anything. Who's a it, friend of mine? Who was oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I love the book. Um, it's what is great. it? Confessions of a uh, screenwriter or something yeah, like that. That's right. He, so he describes how everybody passed on Star Wars. Everybody passed on Raiders of the Lost Ark. E. T. By the way, E. T. 
so how do you are you relying on your gut? What are you doing to I I rely choose something by the way like Splash where you're working with Ron Howard who you obviously have a partnership with. Mm-hmm. You work with Tom Hanks who you've done multiple films. Well, that was with. his first movie, of course. Oh, well, he had yeah. come off of the television show. He did his Bosom TV Buddies. series called Bosom Buddies, but right. we frankly we de- discovered him and put him in his first movie. And that so, worked out pretty well it for out everybody. Really well, we're all <laughs> yeah. we've, we've I think I've made seven movies with Tom Hanks now. He's he's quite delightful. Yeah, isn't he? he's brilliant. He's brilliant, brilliant guy, mm-hmm. brilliant actor, a brilliant his and selection seen... process for for movies or television is is unbelievably great. So, what is your process? What is your selection process? How mm. do you figure out what you're interested in making? I bomb. You'll relate to this. I bombard myself with information all mm-hmm. the time. I make a point to go out of my way and out of my comfort zone to meet new people every day from uber drivers to baristas to you saw me over there with the water getting our water waiting to talk to someone there's just some some stranger right and i just i i i operate on uh, i trust that i will constantly disrupt my comfort zone by trying to conduct a conversation with some someone that's an expert in something that I'm not. So then I have to get through that challenge, you know, the challenge of the language of physics. You you describe that in the book that you made a conscious decision to say, let me find someone from outside of my field yes. and have a conversation with them. Yeah. What what motivated that? That's really not a very common approach. No, it's it's it's, it's not. Um what motivated it is I, I asked myself what seemed to be a rhetorical question when I graduated college, USC. Mm-hmm. And um, it was a very good school. But I said to myself, like the day I graduated, what did I learn? Did I learn anything? And I thought, I'm not sure I really learned anything. And then I thought, what, well, what did I learn? I continued to assault these primary universal questions, these simple questions. And you just keep assaulting. I thought, well, I think I what I really learned for sure is how to is I learned how to cope, survive, and collaborate in a bigger population of people because mm-hmm. that was a certainty. I went, grew up in a, I was a middle class kid, went to a small school prior to that. This was a bigger school, and I succeeded in this bigger school, academically and socially and culturally. But I found the whole thing an interesting kind of challenge. So I succeeded at that part. Then I thought to myself, there's got to be a professor or a class that really, really, you know, grabbed me. There was. There was a, a Dr. Milton Walpen uh-huh. who taught this very popular class, a 400 class, um, on abnormal psychology. Right. Which was very interesting to people. Because it, okay. So it was a very big class. I never met the teach professor because it was a class of 300 kids. And I thought, I'm going to try to go meet Wilton, Milton Walpen. And so I was very persistent in trying to meet a professor at USC, that, and I'd already graduated. He didn't acknowledge, you know, didn't respond to any of my um, letters. So I decided I'm going to go wait for him outside of a summer school class. I waited. He says to me, didn't you graduate? I said, I did. <laughs> but I was really impressed with the, your with the class and your conducting of the class. I really wanted to just have a five-minute coffee conversation. And I turned that into an hour conversation. Uh-huh. And, 
And I learned a lot. I learned a lot more even in the hour. I thought, wow, I learned more in the hour than I did in the whole class. And I liked that class. So that I can do this with other people. Mm -hmm. It just made me feel like, well, this is possible. And I was just a little nobody. I didn't even have a job. I was just, you know, a couple of weeks later, I finally got a law clerk, law clerk job. Uh, sorry. Which, I, by Warner the way, Brothers. I love I love the story how you got that job at Warner Brothers. Yeah, it's you, a funny you story. Were, Tell the story. I don't, okay. want, to, I don't want to give the... So pen. basically, I met with... Will, I, I had the meeting that I just re referred to with Dr. Milton Walpin, and then I'm in my little apartment complex on Ocean Avenue, and in the apartment complex, I overhear these three uh, law school grads, because I was scheduled to go to law school at uh, USC. I hear them talking about, wow... You know, what a summer. Oh, I had the one guy says, oh, I had the cushiest, easiest job. Right. So it immediately got my interest because I needed a job. And if it's going to be cushy and easy. Fantastic. Even better. Let's go. <laughs> so I thought, okay. So I pulled the window back so I could really hear through the screen and drew the drapes so he, they couldn't see me with my ear to the window or uh, to the screen. And so the guy starts talking about the the job. It's the legal department at Warner Brothers, blah, blah. I get the the man's name. Doc, his name was Peter Connect, who ran the legal department. He started with Jack Warner. He's, he's, he was probably 80. And I I called and got a meeting that afternoon with Peter Connect and got the job at 315. Saying, I hear you have an opening for an intern. Yeah. I said, yeah, I'm scheduled to go to USC Law School. I'm a graduate. I hear you need a law clerk. Love to be that person right now. And he said, you're hired. Just like that. Just like that. Un unbelievable. Let's talk a little bit about how human connections have helped you in your career. In your early life, you weren't much of a reader. Right. But you learned that conversations with people became crucial to your intellectual growth and professional growth. How did you reach this insight and how has it um, come come out even even to this day? How does it manifest? Well, I mean, the techniques of which are, are, are embedded in these stories in this book that we're talking about called Face-to-Face, mm -hmm. -face, The Art of Human Connection, because you can't really have, you can't get, you can't get promoted without looking at somebody, right. connecting. You're never going to be able to raise $100 million, which I would do often to make a movie. That's, How, that is that what job. it takes now to make a film, that much money? Well, because movies are now sort of event-oriented, right. they're... The hundred million dollar movie, or hundred plus, hundred to two hundred million dollar movie, is actually easier to accomplish than the forty million dollar movie. Overseas rights and a broader audience. Yeah, or? You, you have to go for a broader audience. Mm -hmm. So, but but I have always tried to have stories that had universal themes. Mm -hmm. So we were talking about a beautiful mind, which uh, which we won an Oscar for, or I did, and it. Um, and the thing about that is that. The universal theme wasn't really about schizophrenia and it wasn't about winning a Nobel Prize. It was much more about love, that love, the power of love, is a, which is a universal force, mm -hmm. gets you can, can get you th through a lot. In this case, it was schizophrenia right. and then his ability to win a Nobel Prize in economics. So basically, I found that by taking the opportunity to look at people when I walk through the street in New York as opposed to my phone. Because right. I can look at my phone all the time. That's always going to be there. Right. And I love my phone. Uh, and it provides me with so much information. But if I'm walking through the street in New York, I'm looking at people and I'm trying to 
but feel or intuit like what's going on in the world right now. Right. So I bombard myself with information that I could read on my iPhone when I'm at home or you know, or, or in my office or iPad, but nonetheless, I, I thrive on human connection because human connection is you feel people's hearts and you don't feel their heart on an iPhone and they don't feel your heart. And the only way to move people enough to promote you or to move, or in the case of romance, move the girl to want to like you or be with you or see something intrinsically valuable is through their heart, through a spirit. It just that's just really the way it works. And so, whether you're in technology or whatever the thing you're doing, you have to have face to face connection. Otherwise, you are just not going to advance your cause. So, in the book, you describe and in, uh, pardon me if I'm confusing the two books books because yeah. it's a bit of a blur. I've gone through a lot of your writings. well, they overlap in they some ways. They definitely do. Yeah, so one is about curiosity, right? But then I realized, unless you look at somebody, and 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 use face-to-face connection, right? there's no bridge into the possibility of exercising curiosity. So you can't really ask people questions and, and have them share with you anything valuable. Right. Unless you've look, you're looking at them because they have to be seen. They have to feel like they're seen and what, they're, and that they're, what they have to say is valuable. So let let's talk about some of the communicators you discuss in the books. Okay. Um, some people that you've engaged in conversation and it's changed um, the course of at least entertainment and probably some people's lives. Sure. You said Oprah could be the most successful communicator you've you've ever experienced. Ex- explain why. Well, I mean, there's so much evidence that supports that she's probably the most successful communicator in the world right now, mm-hmm. but. But it's experiencing it that really, you know, experiencing that really makes a difference and you see it. You really. So um, Spike Lee, I was making a movie with Spike Lee. Which film was that? It was called Inside Man. Shot, oh, of course. Shot right here Denzel in New York City. Denzel Washington, yeah. right? It's shot in Wall Street. <laughs> and with Denzel Washington, I have a great story about eye contact that made that movie happen, actually. But Explain. Then we'll, we, Don't tease us. Give we us won't a- forget. Okay, okay. So basically, I'd known Spike Lee for a while. We both were nominated for Oscars. He for Do the Right Thing, mm-hmm. and I was for another movie. And um, and uh, you know, so we met each other under a very privileged situation. <laughs> and I love Do the Right Thing. It was just so inventive in so many ways, right. cinematically. Uh, he he handled a pretty heavy subject in a in a, the most evolved way cinematically mm-hmm. no one has ever done that and um and i always wanted to work with him so many years have gone by we just never could figure it out and i put a lot of effort into trying to figure it out now it's about eight or nine years later and i have a movie that um that i uh, that that i'm going to make and he came in to talk about it but we saw it a little bit differently and i walked him to the elevator and as I pressed, I pressed the button, and it was only had to go seven floors. And in those singular moments, right, he looked up at me like he's never looked at me before. I felt it differently, uh-huh. and he looked me in the eyes, and he said, "I'm. This is the movie I want to make." It's called, and he pulled it from behind his back. It's called Inside Man. I already had another director on it, but he looked me in the eyes and he said, "I want to make this movie." It's going to be successful, 
And more importantly, it's going to be a successful work relationship for you and me. I promise you it'll be a great experience. Literally an elevator pitch, seven floors. That's what it was. And I felt him. And I and he really probably did exactly, you know, he you know, he did one of the techniques that I would describe in the book actually, but he did it and I felt the power of it, the authenticity of it. I felt I felt that I felt his soul. Right. And honestly, and so I said yes. And I let the other director go, uh, which wasn't easy. And expensive. Uh, it was a little expensive, but worth it <laughs> right. because this became like one of the most profitable, sure. maybe the most profitable movie for uh, Universal that year. Wow, that, that's amazing. And uh, I, I know the most profitable movie for Spike and his career, and huge for Denzel and and me. And, and that's fantastic. So it was a, a real, a real big win, and the probably as as importantly, it, we it ended well. He did provide me a great work experience. He collaborated. He's awesome. He's talented and collaborative. You can't beat that. The other, um, the other two stories that stand out in the book that involve that contact, Eminem with uh, before Eight Mile before came eight out mile, was yeah. kind of known, but not exactly a superstar. No, he wasn't a superstar. Well, I had this. He was premise. a rising rapper. Yeah. So this this is a, this is actually an example of of what. Being alert and what eye contact will do. So, uh, 15 years before Eight Mile came to life, I overheard in New York in a taxi cab right. while I was going from from going from Soho to Midtown, like right about here, and uh, a, a shock jock radio guy talking to Howard or someone else. It could have been, <laughs> yeah. Um, so. Uh, a t- a talking, a talking, talking to a guest, and the guest was named Old Dirty Bastard, Wu Tang Clan. Yeah, from the Wu Tang Clan. But I didn't know much about. This is twenty five years ago today, so I didn't know much about the Wu Tang Clan or even about East Coast hip hop for that matter. I didn't know about that culture. Right. So I I hear Old Dirty, a guy that insists. ODB. On, yeah, but he insists on being called Old Dirty Bastard. Right. And I thought, well, that's a really <laughs> unusual thing. That's it. normally guys. That's an insult. <laughs> He insisted that you don't. That's that's what I am. I'm this guy, so I thought whoever is that person, I have to meet him. So I really go out of my way, and I make a lot of calls, and I eventually am able to meet ODB, your your right. guy here, and we have this interesting conversation. He's really w- incredibly wild, very freeform right. character, and I thought, wow, this is what East the voice of East Coast rap is. This is now, as you said, the Wu Tang Clan. And so I started to learn about the Wu Tang Clan. Then I sort of that I went and met Chug D of Public Enemy, and then Slick Rick. And I realized there's sort of a comical way of the Nizza comes up. The from Nizza, this as all well. this, all this stuff, and that got me on the path of realizing that, um, you know, this music art form was going to be the culture. It's not, you know, the, a subculture. It is in fact going to be the culture, which of course it is, as we now know. And so I then thought, I'm going to try to proof this out cinematically. And American Gangster. Yeah. Well, American Gangster was part of that because I was mm-hmm. able to hire the RZA and put him in American Gangster. But I, but I then, of course, with 8 Mile, I thought, this is worthy of an entire movie. 
But studios said, oh, but there's been rap movies. Mariah Carey did one. Vanilla Ice did one. And I said, well, this is a different type. There's The Belly. There's a bunch of other movies. But I said, well, this is different. And and I, I, I really relied upon all the information I got about human beings and self-actualization and growing. It's a, it's a Joseph Campbell plot line. It is it's, a Joseph. It's absolutely the, the whole, yeah, rap happens to be involved in it. But it's not about rap. Rap no, just not. is a, a flavoring yeah. in that broader. Well, that's incredibly smart. You're, you're. No one's ever said that to me. But you're oh, right. All right. It is a myth. It right. Lives, uh, th- th- there's been dozens of versions of that story. Yeah. Wrapped only, up differently. Right. Uh, yeah. Only this is a this unique is, kid in a unique location. Yeah, yeah. And then the whole different dimension of of hip hop yeah. on top of it. Yeah, but the internal heartbeat that make creates the story architecture is you're right. It's Joseph Campbell, right? Here with a thousand faces. Yeah. It's it lives in that space, and um, so I kind of I probably actually gravitated towards that paradigm because it make, gives you comfort. It's a great it's a great plot. Also, yeah. you know that that so that thank works. you. And then I, I had a chance to meet Eminem. I saw it was so man. talk about the meeting. That's okay. oh by the way, this whole digression is because. The meeting that you describe, yeah. he's like, "Yeah, who the hell are you? I'm out of here." Yeah, he he did say that. Yeah, exactly. He he said it in multiple different ways. But basically, <laughs> I thought it's now many years later since I met ODB and the RZA, and RZA is a, is a big person in my life too. But I thought I am going to try to make a movie about this. But then I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't figure out this puzzle. Eventually, I I see this guy Eminem. You know, he's being filmed on of the VMAs. Right. He wasn't winning an award. He was just in a seat. And I thought, wow, I got to meet this guy. So Jimmy Iovine, who's a very longtime friend, right. uh, created a music uh, a music uh, label called Interscope Records. Giant. He yeah, and he is a visionary. He was able. He had Eminem. So I said, kind of, let's meet him. So we meet him, and. Out of, I'm trying so hard to connect with Eminem, and he won't look at me. He just wasn't happy. He's wasn't not an me. eye contact guy either. He, he is definitely not an eye contact guy. He's a brilliant poet, slight, somewhat recluse. And so he did not want to really look at, you know, connect. And so he said, I'm out after about 15 or 20 minutes. And I thought, <laughs> I've heard enough. I'm good. Yeah, I heard Tapping enough. I, yeah, I'm not <laughs> connecting with you, man. I'm out. And so I, as his hand was on the door to leave, I just desperately said, come on, you can animate. I, I just, that's, I mean, I, I have no logic for the sentence. I just said it. And uh, he was hesitant, but then came back. And then he told his story, how he grew up. And and that became the basis of the entire sure. movie and really the, the story architecture for the whole movie. And he ended up winning an Oscar. Never before as a rapper won an Oscar. Right. And he did. So he's a really, really gifted. And he wrote the music, wrote the... the he played every... He did everything. The guy did everything. The the rap contest. Did he write all of that on both sides? He did everything. That's yeah. amazing. So what was it about the word and the animate? the music composition. The animate word. What is it that caught his attention? Well, I don't really know, but animate means come to life. Sure. And uh, I he is a Scrabble. He might have he might have known the full meaning of it and was intrigued. I I never have asked him. I should probably someday do that. <laughs> you you definitely should. Let's talk about some of the work you've liked and helped uh, motivate or animate your career. 
Uh, as a kid, you were a giant James Bond fan with Sean Connery. I was. Who who isn't? Is uh, those were just the greatest films? No, of, those of... were fantastic. They took you into uh, uh, an escapism universe, a fantasy of like, wow, I can do anything. I can get the cute. I can get the hot girl. I can kick guys' asses, kill and, the bad guys, and kill the bad save guys, the kill world. bad guys, save the world, and drink a martini all at the same time. Right. So you don't really do action films, though. You really do. Films with the big dramatic content. Yeah, with real emotion films. Right. If there's, I believe action, emotion is the destination for films. If there's action, it sets up the the emotional tension, Correct. like Apollo thirteen or Backdraft. Yeah. yeah, stuff happens. Yeah, but it tees up. Or even the, the Da Vinci Code. We had him running and doing right. things, and it wasn't even in the book where he it was that active. But mm-hmm. but we 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 found a way to manufacture that. So, have you ever watched a movie and said, "God, I could never have, I never would have seen that idea. What a what a great concept! It's just so outside of my uh, comfort zone. I wouldn't have done that." Or conversely, have you ever seen something and said, "Oh, there was a great opportunity here, and these guys blew it." Oh my God! All, all those I've answers yes. To, to, okay, I've seen concepts. Uh, not correctly executed, where I think they blew it. Right. But I've blown it too. So sure. I, I have movies that I could cite, which I won't do now. Right. That where I've where I've kind of blown it, where I've rationalized. It's uh, one of my rules where I thought, well, this is good enough. This one decision is good enough, and one decision that is good enough is always right. Shit. It just is, and you're the best judge of quality. You just have to don't yourself. Right. So, and I do sometimes because it. You just the endless assault of decisions you have to make to make a movie, raise the money, make a movie, turn it into some cinematic masterpiece, hopefully. Um, so, um, but I have had there the movie that a couple of movies changed my life. Really, the one movie that got me into show business really that made me think that everything's possible was Mel Brooks's Blazing Saddles. Oh, sure. Because he violated every single rule of ethics, morality, and language. And and, uh, uh, and the fourth and, wall. He breaks the fourth, the fourth wall. wall at the end. And it worked. So I thought, wow, this was like a, the first shock comedy. <laughs> and I just called it that to myself, like a shock comedy. And I thought, that means you can really do anything. This is right. so exciting. So the first 17 years of my life, that's all I wrote or produced was were comedies, you know, Nutty Professor, Liar, Liar, Parenthood, I could go on. But the point is, is I just did that. Boomerang with Eddie Murphy and Steve Martin. Anyway, but the movie that really changed my life was Steven Spielberg's E.T. Mm-hmm. Because I realized when I experienced that movie at the Cinerama Dome in Hollywood, every, but when the movie ended, everybody was at peace. Uh-huh. Everybody felt good. It He... That movie elevated people's moods to a really positive place. It, it created a transcendental moment for human beings where they didn't have to rush to get their car and they weren't aggressive. And it, was, it, it empowered you. It empowered possibilities. And I thought, I want to try to make that be my goal, like to aspire. I, I never reached that. And honestly, I, I've done really good work, but that was at a very, very, very high level. And uh, I deeply admire it and mm-hmm. became an aspirational, uh, professional aspiration. That, that's a touchstone in your career, seeing it was. film. Yeah, huh. well, well, to knowing the power of film. 
like the power of film, great stories that have redemption can move people, can create good vibes in the world. And that's actually my goal with even with my television shows or my movies. I just I really want to entertain people, engage them so they have a great time, but make them but put out good vibes. So so let's talk about a touchstone and moving people. Okay. I'm a giant arrested development fan. Okay. The voiceover narration, it's beyond a meme now. That has become a cultural touchstone, especially in the current era. You see it all the time. Someone says something on TV that turns out to be nonsense. Mm -hmm. And in parentheses, you get narrator. It wasn't. Ah. The the line straight from from Ron Howard's voice. When you guys were first putting that together, how did the narrator come about? And did you have any idea this was going to become as giant a little cultural touch known as it's become? No. No, no to all those things. Basically, this was a project that was primarily cooked up with the, I was part of it, of course, mm-hmm. but the collaboration of Mitch Hurwitz, who created right. it, and Ron Howard, who collaborated on its birth and, of course, does this voiceover narration. And I Which, had, by the way, is just pitch perfect. Yeah. Like, you recognize his voice, but if you're not paying attention, you don't know who it is right away. Correct. And and his- Well, his, he's smart and talented. His deadpan is perfect. Yeah, it is. And I it know is. throughout the show, there have been little hints that it's him. You yeah. see the hand of the narrator with the ring that says <laughs> RH That's on funny. it. How did how did that come about? Um, I think it was probably Mitch's idea, and Ron was excited to do it. Mm-hmm. And knew he could do it because he understood the tone really well. And he has a great voice. He's a incredibly, he's a really good actor. And his style of communication in real life is not that dissimilar. He's, he's a very unaffected person. He's uh, completely unpretentious. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, a, he's incredibly, he's confident, but unpretentious. And how, did, how did you guys meet and become partners? We met because I had this discipline of curiosity conversations. Right. And I looked out my window while I was a television producer at Paramount, and I yelled out the window <laughs> to Richie Cunningham. Right. I, he was you Richie. didn't call him Richie Cunningham, did no, you? No, I said, Ron, Ron Howard. And um, and then he sort of scurried away. And then I called his office and said, would, would he consider meeting me? And then we had our first Hollywood lunch. Right. Uh, which it was his first Hollywood lunch and his, because he never did Hollywood lunches. He was just working. Right. Again, he's just a, he's a guy that just works and gets on it. But so he never did a Hollywood lunch. He did one with Brian Grazer. That worked. And then we pitched some ideas together. And I pitched two ideas. One was Night Shift. One was Splash. Michael Keaton, right? Michael Keaton, right. And Henry Winkler. That's right. And that was the first movie we did. Even though I wanted him to do The Love Story Mermaid, he wanted to do an R-rated film. Uh-huh. Um, and so he did it. And he did it really, really well. It Relatively became, small budget. And it was fairly very, successful, right? It was immediately successful. Mm-hmm. Because the chairman of Warner Brothers at the time was named Bob Daly, who was who just left CBS, he sold it immediately to CBS for the entire cost of the movie. So we're in profit. Guaranteed. Hour breaking. one. Right. Yeah, exactly. Huh. And then um, where did the script from uh, for Splash. Splash come from? Splash came because I I had this, I started this, this idea of what if I could meet my perfect girl? Right. And what would that girl be like? What would those characteristics be? How would she communicate? Um, 
the purity of all of those things. And I just kept defining it and redefining it and redefining. Where would I live? I thought, well, would it ever happen in L.A.? No. I would never meet the perfect girl in L.A. Okay. Where Although would it eventually be, you do. Where would it be? Yeah, which I did. But my, my Veronica actually is from Bloomsburg, uh, Pennsylvania. Okay. And she was only in L.A. for a day. But you're right. <laughs> Very Wow, you're a good reader. Thoughtful. Um, so in any event, um, so I just kept assaulting a, the simplicity again of a question that I postulated to myself. Uh-huh. Is it possible to meet a perfect girl is possible what does a perfect girl look like what would that be then i defined it then i wrote it then i superimposed this whole mythological image of imagery of a mermaid because mermaids have power Mm -hmm. they have beauty and sex appeal Mm -hmm. they have simplicity and they're unattainable and that makes the love story harder and gives you a third act right (laughs) that that's interesting and and it's fil- the film I've always adored. It's filled filled with great characters. John, the little cameos from John, John Candy, Candy are just hilarious. Well, John Candy was hilar- was so funny. Um, but we talked earlier today on the show about my grandmother who supported me. It was mm-hmm. a Jewish grandmother, a little tiny Jewish grandmother, and she had all these isms. The isms were like think big, be big. Uh, it's just as easy to love a, good, a rich girl as a poor girl. Um, you have problems, wash it down with Chris, with chicken soup. She had a crazy, every one of these isms. I took all of those isms that Grandma Sonia said, and I gave them to the character of John Candy. Right. And that's how they all kind of happened like that. He says, that's think so big, be big, my friend. And then there, my grandmother had kind of a decadence, weirdly. And I extrapolated further on the decadence, you know, like my grandmother smoked. She got divorced early in life, like when she was like in 1940, no one got divorced. She did all these kind of things that were that were unconventional. So I, I put a lot of those those things into the character that John Candy played. And then real writers came in to rewrite me mm-hmm. because my script was terrible. It embodied the idea. And, but but Lowell it was Hansen, a first draft. Bob Luman, it was the first draft. So, um, but it was Lowell Gans and Bob Lou Mandel that were really gifted and incredibly funny, like beyond funny. So you you mentioned the beautiful girl. You mentioned this, which sort of makes me think of the current environment. I don't think you can make Blazing Saddles today. No, you can't do that. You probably could Prohibited. make Splash today, but yeah. it would be it would some of the the more interesting aspects would be sanded down. So given the current environment, given the Me Too movement and everything else, how has that affected the options you have for, for making films today? It's not, it's, it's not too confining for Ron and, and, and Brian Grazer and Imagine because we operate, the movies and television we make, they, they just naturally operate within a value system that doesn't violate so that, it doesn't face. So it doesn't no negative really, impact. No, I mean, if you're doing, I don't make those hard, those R comedies, uh, right? But it would definitely affect, con- be constrictive that way if we if we did. Not and not it, your genre, really. It, yeah, it's not really my genre. The R rated comedies and doing comedies itself is kind of hard right now in in movies. In TV, I'm thrilled to do a comedy. I I mean, I I like television and I like uh, so so. I'm sensitized to it, but I, I think Ron and I just by nature 
uh, are not human rights violators. <laughs> right. So you, you describe him as like the nicest human soul you'll ever want to meet. He is. Before I get to my speed round questions, I just have to talk to you a little bit um, about the dyslexia. Okay. Um, I, I told you I love the left is the hand that makes the L uh, when you do this. That's funny. Um, I, I don't know how else it manifests itself for you. I always found that if I would go out to eat with a group of people, hmm. I was always eating other people's bread and <laughs> water. I don't do that. So, I never do but that. But I'll tell you, yeah, a, a, a neurologist at hmm. Stony Brook University Medical hmm. Center who works with ADHD kids and dyslexic kids hmm. told me another little shortcut. You make the okay sign. Oh, yeah, yes. And this is B is bread and D is drink, and that's how. And ever since she showed me that shortcut, mm. I've stopped eating other people's oh, cool. dinner yeah. rolls. It's yeah. um, what I I wanted to ask. How did you learn to manage the dyslexia? How did you overcome that? Because that's a really, especially for someone who reads screenplays all yeah. day long, getting past that that reading issue it had to be a big challenge. Well, yes. Yeah, so in my early education, zero through. Fifth grade, mm -hmm. I couldn't read a word. Uh, That's I couldn't amazing. Read one word, and so it became pretty traumatizing, and uh, it caused behaviors of like not looking at people because they might pick me to come to the front of the class, and I would never have the answer because I couldn't read. So right. therefore, any of those kind of exchange exchanges that involved having to read to get the answer didn't work. So so how did you overcome that? It just happened. I got over time. I got lucky there's, you know, these sort of moments of epiphany where mm -hmm. some flash breakthrough occurred and I could then spell. Mm -hmm. I was able to spell almost really I remember being able to spell before I could read. Huh. And then I was able to read in 6th grade, not not well, cuz I would always start on the right and go to the left. Right. And so that was problematic, but it just took discipline, and it still takes a lot of discipline. I invert words, and I get so upset, and I say to Veronica, I'm so upset I press send, and it doesn't make any sense. And so, she said, well, people expect stuff like that. You don't have to be so hard on yourself. Right. And uh, You have trouble dialing phones? You have trouble do I don't you transpose dial, numbers? I don't dial phones. You don't? No. I mean, I do, I do transpose numbers. Yeah. Uh, I seldom dial phones. I use my smartphone. Just press I use the my name. Siri, or right. I press a name. That's it. Early Bing, in my done. career, I worked in an investment bank, and they uh. they rotate you through every department. You're mm. on the trading desk. You're in the bond. Res so when they rotated me through the the sales department, they give you a list of clients and call all these people. That lasted a day. I couldn't. Was yeah. It's constantly getting yeah, yeah, wrong yeah. numbers. They're like, well, fortunately, really... I mean, technology is so great right now. And right. I, I mean, I, I love technology and I love the power of smartphones. I just think they should be done independently. I think you should use all your smartphones and smart equipment to get smarter. And then when you meet somebody, be completely present Put it away. and look at them face to face. Right. And in the book, there's so many techniques that bridge into success variables, success situations. All right. So I only have you for a few more moments. Okay. Let me run through our speed round. Yes. I'm going to ask you it. 10 questions. Oh, boy. Bang through these as fast as you can. Okay. First car you ever own, year, make, and model. A 2002 BMW Burgundy. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, that's what it was, 2002 Burgundy, right. BMW. I drove it on the uh, uh, the Warner Brothers lot, and I, I've met two girls, very independent of one another, looking through my rearview mirror with my little BMW. One was Diane Keaton, and I stopped and talked to her for a minute. Get out and of I here. And I said, what are you working on? She said, The Godfather. <laughs> I, did, I had no idea. I was, like, I, I was just like, I was a kid that just from the valley. I didn't oh, even know why hilarious. I was on the lot. And Tom Hanks' wife for Rita Wilson Hanks, uh-huh. who's now like at, at at you know at our age, she's a rock star. Yeah. I mean, but she's Tom's wife, and uh, I met her and drove her home uh, in the daytime to Wilson Woodrow Wilson Avenue, and that's she told me that's where they got their last name from the street there. Oh, around. that's so funny. Yeah. Uh, what's the most important thing people don't know about Brian Grazer? That I cry a lot. Really? Yeah. Like watching commercials uh, or no? Uh, well, music. Okay. I get emotional. I get I, that. I celebrate the beauty of of genius or hard work or accomplishment, uh-huh. and I can see little bits of accomplishment in, in in things, and I I start to get emotional. Huh. Interesting. Early mentors. Uh, early mentors. Well, my grandmother first, Grandma For Sonia sure. Schwartz, <laughs> and then. Early in my career, a producer named Saul Zantz who uh-huh. produced Amadeus, and he produced. He also produced One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Wow, two giant impeccable. Movies. Well, and a third one, The English Patient. I think he won two or three Oscars for Best Picture. He had impeccable taste. Uh-huh. And what I learned from Saul Zantz is, if you, even with nothing written, I'm going to start scouting locations. Really, meaning, if I like something and it's it's not even written. I'm actualizing it. It's being done. So I just thought, wow, creative visualization. He was doing that early on. And someone named Richard Zanuck, Dick Zanuck. Of course. Also great taste, amazing taste. What are some of your favorite books? Do you do you read much in the way of books, or are you so busy with screenplays you just don't get to books? Um, no, I do read, I read books more than I read screenplays. I try to read um, nonfiction, but I have, a favorite, I have many, many favorite books, but one of them... Uh, that is is grit by Angela. Just Duckworth. came out last year. Yeah, yeah very she's, popular. It's so great. It's it's definitely have to do that. Give it. Give us another one. Everybody loves this question. I look. I like uh, martial arts and I like Eastern thought. So mm-hmm. Bruce Lee is an icon and fa- I'm a sure. fan of. So he wrote a book called Jet Jet Kwando, and I like that book. Huh. Okay. Quite interesting. Okay. Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. I failed so many times. Um, I learned to keep taking risk and keep failing. Keep coming back at it. Keep coming back. Don't. Well, what I really learned is don't let fail. It used to really traumatize me, uh-huh. depress me. I couldn't go to work. I'd, you know, I'd develop physical problems. Right. But that doesn't happen any longer. Huh. I, I still don't like to fail, but I'd rather be fearless <laughs> so normally at this point i would ask you what you do for fun but i know you surf i know you do uh taekwondo and other stuff yeah what what else do you do for fun uh play tennis i love that mm-hmm. do food videos so go to brian grazer and watch my food videos they're kind of funny okay i did them originally for my all four of my kids they thought they were hilarious because i'm always doing something funny with food and funny parts of the world and my kid has encouraged me, and that's why I, I like doing that. That sounds like a blast. Yeah. Uh, 
within the film and television industry, what are you most optimistic and most pessimistic about today? I'm the most optimistic about the power of stories. Mm-hmm. That hardware has changed, consolidation, movie companies, all those those things have changed. But that, I've seen that over over three and a half decades. Mm-hmm. That all you know, okay, movies are terrible now, but they're not terrible. Uh, DVD is going to change the movie business. It didn't. Um, Netflix is going to destroy the movie business. It didn't. It was good for the movie business. It's the golden age of, of it film is. and television. It's, it's now. just great stories. I think people, particularly in the tech business, who didn't didn't a decade ago value stories. Everybody values the power of a story. And our final two questions. Yes. Uh, a recent college grad comes to you and said they're interested in pursuing a career in film or television production. What sort of advice would you give them? Uh, always try to understand the language of our business, of mm-hmm. the culture. Read the trades, read Deadline Hollywood, read these things that seem kind of like, you know, trashy, gossipy, mm-hmm. but truthful of what's going on in Hollywood. First, learn the language. That's what I'd say. Learn the language. Then I'd say, find somebody that you resp- – oh, then I always say to somebody, do you want to – optimally, do you want to work inside or outside? If you want to work inside, then you can be an agent, you can be a producer, you can be a writer. If you want to work outside, you can be an assistant director or a director. You have to think, imagine, where do you want to spend your day, in or out? It's a simple thing. And then you can find another simple thing that helps you get there. But the language is going to help you because it'll decode the internal workings of the business. And our final question, what do you know about the world of entertainment today that you wish you knew 30 plus years ago when you were first getting started? Um, that, what I wish I, say it again? What, what do you know today, today that you wish you knew 30 years ago? That failing is okay. Mm-hmm. I wish I knew that failing is okay because it caused me a lot of worry and stress. I think if you... Honestly, what I really think is if you're a good person, you work towards you know, the laws of karma. Like, just I do really believe in like smiling at people. I believe in I believe in all of those little those little butterfly effect moments uh-huh. get you goodwill. Absolutely, goodwill allow forgives you for failure. There are I've seen so many people superstars to be incredibly rude and when they fail they never come back they can't get back uh-huh. but if you're kind, burn too many bridges along the way is that they what? burn a lot of bridges they make too much noise they're too rude they offend too many people and they don't create good vibes out there you know it's a collaborative business and uh-huh. you're never you're not going to even bat 500 right. it's sort of if you think of baseball you're going to bat you're going to bat 330 to 350 that's pretty amazing yeah and so basically, you have to just know that success is not a straight-up trajectory. And a lot of people lose their humility, and they think, "Oh, I'm," go-, you know. And they and they when they lose humility, then they lose manners and human etiquette. They don't look at you; they look past you; they look over you. And everyone catches all that stuff. People feel energy. That's how you make big decisions. And so I think I've gotten a lot of breaks. Uh, and I, I'm really grateful to all the breaks I've gotten and continue to get. Thank you, Brian, for being so generous with your time. This has been absolutely fascinating. We have been speaking with Brian Grazer. He is a 
television and film producer and co-founder of Imagine Entertainment. If you enjoy this conversation, well, look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes. You can see any of the previous 260 or so conversations we've had over the past five years. You can find that at iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever your finer podcasts are sold. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Go give us a lovely review on Apple iTunes. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put together this podcast each week. Atika Valbrun is our project director. Michael Boyle is my booker slash producer. Michael Batnick is my director of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.